Thank you, Bob. Thank you, Dorothy and Rhoda. You may be seated. And turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews tonight, chapter 4. Tonight we're in the sixth session of the Power for Abundant Living class. Now, doesn't that sound unusual for a Sunday night meeting? <laughs> well, not if you've been here for the last five weeks, because we've been taking a segment or a particular topic from each of the sessions of the Power for Abundant Living class. And of course, tonight we're taking something from this session, the sixth session, which is the battle of the senses versus revelation faith and the new birth. So, you ready to battle? All right, we're in Hebrews this evening. The battle of the senses versus revelation faith. I think in the foundational class, um, at least one of the great sessions was session 12 where I learned how to speak in tongues. At least that was a great one for me. But, you know, that wouldn't have been so great if it hadn't been for the foundation that was laid in the entire Holy Spirit field. And that wouldn't have been so great if it hadn't have been for the new birth and the renewed mind and learning about my sonship rights. And that wouldn't have been so great if I hadn't learned about the battle of the senses. So you got to go all the way back to the beginning, but that's only halfway through. You know, the four crucified and Christ in you and all those other great things. I don't think I can say there's one special session of the class. They were all special to me. Uh, and so, but here's a special one tonight, one that I've always enjoyed, well, along with all the others, but the battle of the senses versus revelation faith. And in this session, you learn that the natural man has only the five senses, which are his only avenues or media for learning, only the five senses. And what are the five senses? Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, and touching. And that natural man, the man of body and soul, only has those five senses by which he can learn anything. When a baby is born, does he know everything to begin with? No, he's got to learn it. And how does he learn it? From himself? No, from things outside of himself through the five senses. He learns it from his mother, from his father, from his peers, from his environment. He learns via his five senses. Now, you also learn that man needs a point of contact outside of himself for learning. And truth needs a center of reference which is not the individual seeking. It's not the individual himself, but he's got to go outside of himself to learn things. He cannot learn it from himself. So that baby, as he's growing up, through his five senses, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, and touching, he learns things from his mother, he learns things from his father, he learns things from his playmates, he learns things as he goes to school, he learns things as he's out on the playground, he learns how to get in trouble and how to get out of it, he learns all kinds of things as he's growing up. But it's the learning process, and that's how everybody learns. There's nobody in this world that avoids that process. A natural man has only those five avenues of learning. Now, if you were in the advanced class on Powerful Abundant Living, after you receive the Spirit, you have nine manifestations by which you can receive information. And specifically, the revelation manifestations where you can see, hear, smell, taste, and touch things on a spiritual level, not the five senses, but the inner man, that Christ within you, gives you that ability to comprehend spiritually 
what is going on. However, the natural man can only receive via these five senses. And to the end that we restrict our learning to one particular individual, and Dr. Werwell cited numerous examples in the class, such as Aristotle, um, and Plato, and Socrates, and others, if you limit yourself to these men, then that is your center of reference that's outside of yourself for whatever you're looking for. But usually what happens is we don't learn from just one center, but we have multiple centers. So we pick up a little bit from Aristotle, a little bit from Marx, uh, a little bit from Jung, a little bit from Dewey if you're in education, a little bit from many other sources, and you put that all together and you come to your own conclusions based on those multiple sources. Now, I think that is just fantastic perception to see that. And yet, most people never stop to evaluate how you learn. But it's absolutely tremendous how we learn. There's no other way you do it. You don't just sit down there and, and stand next to a, or sit next to a plant and absorb all the knowledge that that plant has, do you? No. It's only through the five senses that you acquire. You can sit down beside that plant, this flower here, and you can look at it. There's colors entering your mind. There's shape. Uh, there's an aroma, perhaps, coming off of those flowers. But those are all five what? Senses. And that's knowledge coming into your mind. But for us, we may have multiple centers outside of our self, outside of ourself, but when it comes to faith and practice, there's only one center of reference, and that's the Bible, God's Word. God's Word is, or the Bible is, God's Word and will. The Bible is the Word of God. It doesn't simply contain the Word of God. As I was in Germany... Um, I got to talking to a man and telling him a little bit about our position on the Word. And I told him we believe the Bible is the Word of God. He says, well, I believe it contains the Word of God. And I stopped and thought about that, and that just didn't sound too cool. Because if it contains it, that means, well, it might have it here, but over here it's man's Word. Now, how do I know that this verse is God's Word and the other verse is man's Word? Then, as you know, we might as well chuck the whole thing, right? <laughs> might as well throw it away. Well, what good is it if it isn't all God's? Either it is or it isn't. And if it isn't here, but it is someplace else, how do I know? See? So I accept it as God's word. And of course, the proof of the puddings in the eating, as you try out God's word, it never fails you. The word of man, the word of Aristotle, the word of Marx, the word of of Lenin and many others, Jung, they all will fail you at times, but God's word lives and abides forever. It never fails. And it's as simple as that. But the Bible then becomes, in the Power for Abundant Living class, and for those of us that love God and love his word, it's our only center of reference for truth. It's our only rule for faith and practice. And in that study of the Word and the battle of the senses versus revelation faith and the new birth, it took you from the 
understanding of what was sense knowledge and what the difference between the senses and the spiritual realm was, what the bridge was between those two realms, and then the new birth and how you receive that new birth, what the renewed mind is, what your sonship rights are when you are born again of God's Spirit. And Dr. Orwell said in the class that this issue is the crux of Christianity. And if you get this clear, then everything else will fall in its proper place and perspective. If you get body, soul, and spirit clear in your mind, and the reason people have had trouble understanding the new birth and understanding what God does in that believer when he is born again is because they have not understood the difference between body, soul, and spirit. When you understood body, soul, and spirit, formed, made, and created, what did that do for you? It opened up a whole new vista of understanding. And how did you learn about the difference in those terms? By studying Aristotle? By studying Marx? By studying Weirwell? Cummins? Schroer? <laughs> what did you study? You studied the Word, right? God's Word. And it defines it very clearly and distinctly. In the Power for Abundant Living class we saw in Isaiah 43, 7, and you don't have to look it up because I'm sure most of you have read this before several times. Isaiah 43, 7, it says that man was formed, made, and what? Created. Form, made, and created. And form means to create. The words are synonymous, right? Oh, I'm sorry. Now, form means you need something, a substance, a material, from which to form it. I remember an art class having a blob of dirt. What do you call it? Clay. <laughs> or porcelain. And you work that thing around on the table while it's spinning around, and you form something out of it but you've got to have the chunk of clay. You can't just sit there and pretend like there's something there and all of a sudden, poof, there it is, right? It just doesn't work that way. If you started with nothing and came up with something, that would be creating. And only God can create. And I hate to disappoint the world who so often misuses that term, but they cannot create. There is no such thing as creativity on the part of man. There might be formativity and makeivity, but <laughs> there is there there just ain't no such thing as creativity <laughs> on man's part. Now God can create. He can take nothing and come up with something. But man cannot create. And whenever I hear somebody use that term, I just cringe. And they use it so much now in the media and so on. They talk about so-and-so created something. You go to, what's that place, Burger Chef? Can't you create there? Burger King. I don't know, one of them. And you can create your own burger. A couple of us went in there one time and we, ordered, we just ordered a couple burgers and we sat down. And we prayed, Father, remove all the impurities and the dumb things disappeared. But yeah. 
I know that works, but you cannot create a burger, all right? You can form a burger, and you can form all the junk that you put on top of it. Even Way International cannot create burgers. They got the best burgers in the world. But um, <laughs> the world has sure messed up those terms. To form something, you have to have something from which to develop it. Has to be something there. To create it means you start with nothing, not even air, and you poof, create it. That's what God can do and no one else. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. When it came to the fifth day, is it? When the animals were made, He also had to create in the animals soul life. Soul life. Because there was no soul life in any of the plants or the physical things that existed before that. He had to create soul life. And the third usage of that word create in Genesis 1 is when it came to man because now he had body and soul, but he didn't have spirit, and he created spirit in that man. These are foundational things. But I'm just reviewing it for you. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 you're also acquainted with says man is body, soul, and spirit. I pray your whole body, soul, and what? Spirit be preserved blameless. Now, for the rest of the world, and for the most part Christendom, they equate spirit and soul. So they say soul is spirit, and spirit is soul. Well, then why does it talk about body, soul, and spirit in 1 Thessalonians? Because God felt like saying the one thing twice, but not the other thing. Yeah, I mean, he could have said body, flesh, soul, and spirit, couldn't he? Right? Sure. But he didn't. There were three things, body, soul, and spirit. And in the beginning, God formed the body. He made the soul and created the spirit. Now, the word made is a much more general term than the word either formed or create. Uh, made can be used of forming. It, you know, Made is general enough that it would include the idea of forming or it would include the idea of creating. Uh, in the sense of the soul, the soul already existed in animals, so God did not have to create it because it was already what? In existence. See, But it wasn't a matter of fashioning it or forming it like he did the body out of the dust of the ground. So he simply used that term make for the soul. Uh, perhaps like cloning it. <laughs> I don't know how he did it, but he made the soul. He formed the body out of the dust of the ground, made the soul, and created the spirit. In Hebrews chapter 4, and in verse 12, for the word of God is quick and powerful. The word of God is, is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of what? Soul and spirit. The word of God can divide between soul and spirit. But man, for the most part, can't. Man equates soul and spirit. He says spirit is soul and soul is spirit. But the word of God divides between what? Soul and spirit. Now, can you be much more clear than that? And the word uses soul as that life within the man, the individual himself, and spirit as that which was upon Adam to begin with conditionally and which is born in the believer today. But the natural man only has two things, body and soul. 
body and soul. When you get born again of God's spirit, you also have what? Spirit. Then you have body, soul, and spirit. Then you're a three-part man again like Adam was originally. Back in Genesis, <clears throat> chapter 2. And in verse 7, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground. What did he form? The body. The physical body. You have dust, what do you think you're going to make out of dust? A soul? A spirit? No. A body. He formed a body. Physical. And breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. A living soul. What was the point at which man became a living soul? When he had breath life, when he could breathe. God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. So now he was formed, body, made soul and back in Genesis 1:26. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish, the sea, over the fowl, of the air, over the cattle, over the earth, and over the creeping thing on the earth. So God did what? Verse 27. Created. He created. He created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him male and female created them. What is the image of God? What? Spirit, John 4, 24, says God is spirit. He's not flesh. He's not soul, <laughs> breath life. He is spirit. God is spirit, John 4, 24. So if God created man in his own image, he created him as spirit. Now man was body, formed out of the dust of the ground, soul, by the breath life, and spirit, because God had to create that in him. Why did God have to create spirit in Adam and Eve? Because he, had, he already had the other things. He had the elements to make the body out of. He had the soul and the animals so he could make that for man. But he did not have spirit for man. And he created that spirit in man. Okay? So now man is three-part body, soul, and spirit. And of course, Adam sinned, and after the fall, man only had body and soul again until Jesus Christ made available spirit. And on the day of Pentecost, you could be born again of God's spirit, receive that spirit on the inside, and again, today, you're a three-part man, body, soul, and spirit. Tonight, I want to take you a step further into understanding the difference between soul and spirit. The word spirit that's used in the Old as well as the New Testament is sometimes used of the spirit of man. Now, generally speaking, it's used of God the giver who is the spirit, the Holy Spirit, or it's used of the gift that he gives when we're born again, which is Holy Spirit or spirit. But that spirit is holy. 
And of course, it's used of devil spirits. The term is used of that. But it is also at times used of the spirit of man. In the Holy Spirit, the book Receiving the Holy Spirit today, Dr. Werwell, of course, gives you all these different usages. But spirit of man is one of them. And the spirit of man is the soul life of man. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Well, keep your finger there. We'll be there in a minute. 1 Corinthians 2. But look at Acts 19.21. Acts 19.21. 20. The word grew and multiplied. Verse 21, after these things were ended. Now this is when Paul is at Ephesus. Been there for two years and three months. In all Asia heard the word. And after these things were ended, Paul purposed in the Spirit. When he had passed through Macedonia, he had to go to where? Jerusalem. Now if you've already finished the class on Power for Abundant Living, you know Paul's going through or going to Jerusalem was not the will of the Spirit in chapters 20 and 21. Matter of fact, the Spirit told him expressly on different occasions through prophets and others not to go to Jerusalem. And yet Paul made up his mind he was going, he was willing to die there, do whatever had to be done. So was it the Spirit, the Spirit, the gift on the inside that receives its information from God that told him to go to Jerusalem? No. So this cannot be the gift of Spirit. This has to be His Spirit, the Spirit of man. Understand? He purposed in the Spirit. The reason the word Spirit is sometimes used of the Spirit of man or the soul life of a man is because the basis of all life is spirit. Without spirit, the soul would have no mobility, no movement. The body, biological life, would have no life in it. Spirit is necessary and essential. If you didn't have God who is spirit, you wouldn't have anything that you see around you. Hear, smell, taste, or touch. That's why it's sometimes used. Now, Paul should have been purposing where? In the gift, <laughs> the Holy Spirit, on the inside. That's why it uses the term here, and he could have said purposed in his mind, which, by the way, is what the Aramaic says here. The Greek has spirit, the Aramaic has mind. But he could have said in the Greek as well, purposed in the mind, but it's an interesting contrast between going by the spirit of man as opposed to the Holy Spirit. See it? Should have been going by the Holy Spirit. Then he wouldn't have gone to Jerusalem and gotten in trouble. Now go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. In verse 10. Well, verse 9, But as it is written, I have not seen nor ear heard, neither hath entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him, those things which God hath prepared for them that love him is the context of this section and it's dealing with the things concerning the mystery. You pick that up from verses 6 and 7 and so on. 
So verse 10, but God hath revealed them. Them what? The things that he's talking about in verse 9, the things of the mystery. God has revealed to them of those things unto us by his what? Spirit. And that is the gift of Holy Spirit that you have on the inside. You didn't get it by your brilliant five senses mind. It came via the what? Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things of the mystery, yea, the deep things of God. Then, verse 11, For what man knoweth the things of a man, an individual man, save or accept the spirit of man which is where? Now that's the individual, man himself. Who knows what's in your heart except you? Unless you tell me. I don't know what's in your heart. You may put on a good facade, a good front, and I may not know what's really in your heart. On the other hand, you may try to tell me, and you may think you're telling me, but deep down in, you're really not letting out your inner feeling. That's the spirit of man is the only thing, the soul, you yourself, you're the only one that really knows what's in your heart. Even so, the things of God knoweth no man but God himself, the Spirit of God. And their spirit is used of God himself. But now God, a man, let's take a man. Um, like John Schroer here. Um, I could tell John what's on my heart. So I could reveal to John what my spirit, my spirit of man, soul life, is really thinking, right? Same way God could reveal to John what's really on his heart from the spirit of God. See the analogy between the two examples here? Tremendous. Now how did we receive this information about the spirit? Verse 12. Now we received not the spirit of the world, and this deals with devil spirits, the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is what? of God, the Holy Spirit, the gift that we have on the inside, and that's how we receive God's heart. That we might know the things of the mystery that are freely given to us of God, which things also we do what? Speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teaches, but also which the Holy Spirit, the gift, teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual, but, verse 14, the natural man, the man of body and soul who doesn't have the Spirit, that natural man receiveth not the things from the Spirit of God, usage one, which is God himself. The natural man cannot receive those things from God because he doesn't have what kind of Spirit? Holy Spirit, the gift. That's why it's so vital to be body, soul, and spirit. And the only way to get body, soul, and spirit is to be born again. The natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God because he's only body and soul. So he doesn't have that spirit by which he can communicate with God. It's on the blank. See? That third part. For they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Now, go to Leviticus chapter 17. The Hebrew word for soul. 
By the way, the word spirit, let me say that again, can, as I said, be used of the spirit of man, the soul itself. Although the vast majority of its usages are regarding either God or the gift. Okay? But spirit of man is a usage. Um, you'll also see spirit used of wind, because spirit hath no form or comeliness. The ancients compared it to the wind. You can't see it. You see the effects of it, but you can't see the wind itself. So they would sometimes use this word spirit for wind or breath even. Now the word soul is the Hebrew word nephesh, N-E-P-H-E-S-H, nephesh. The soul is the individual himself, the one that's in control of the body and the spirit that you have. You control your body. It says in 1 Corinthians 14 that the spirits are subject to the what? Prophets. Right. The, the prophets not possess, that's devil possession. The spirits don't control the prophets. The prophets control their own spirits that they receive from God. But it's you, the individual. That's, that's your soul life. In Leviticus 17, in verse 10, And whatsoever man there be of the house of Israel or of the strangers that sojourn among you that eateth any manner of blood, I will even set my face against that soul. There's the word nephesh, soul meaning that individual, the individual himself. You know, not just against his body, but the individual himself, the soul, that eateth blood and will cut him off from among his people. Verse 11, for the life, the word life, is again the word nephesh, which means soul. The soul of the flesh is where? In the blood. In the blood. And that's why in the field of the new birth and so on, or the birth of Christ, uh, because the there's no interchange of blood between a fetus and its mother, that that perfect blood of Jesus Christ was retained. Now, it doesn't mean that the blood, you know, the type of blood is determined genetically from the sperm and the egg. But the soul life that's in that blood is determined strictly from the male side. And soul life is something you cannot isolate scientifically. All right. So that soul, the soul life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you, and that's why it said not to eat blood. I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. That's why in the Old Testament to make atonement for your souls there always had to be the shedding of blood, the animal sacrifices. Jesus Christ was the final sacrifice. He had perfect blood and his shed blood settled it once and for all. That's why there's no more atonement because he already took care of it. But that's why there had to be the atonement the shedding of blood, to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. There it says it. 
And in verse 12, Therefore I said unto the children of Israel, No soul of you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger that sojourneth among you eat blood. Why? Because the blood was to be utilized for the atoning of sins, for taking care of your sins, your soul. See, where do you sin? Is it your body that goes off and sins on its own? No, you're in control of your body. You're supposed to be. Right? Don't blame it on your bod. That's right. And whatsoever man... Well, no soul of you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger and sojourn among you eat blood. Verse 13, And whatsoever man there be of the children of Israel, or of the strangers that sojourn among you, which hunteth and catcheth any beast or fowl that may be eaten, he shall even pour out the blood thereof and cover it with dust, for it is the soul, there it is again, nephesh, of all flesh. The blood is the soul of all flesh. Man only? All flesh. Does that include animal? Yes, it does. The blood of it is for the soul thereof. The blood is for the soul of man or the soul of that animal. Not spirit, the soul. And keep that distinction. Animals do not have spirit, never have, never will. But man has soul, just like the animals, but he also had spirit. Adam did, but he lost it. But today, since the day of Pentecost, since Jesus Christ made it available, we can again have that spirit. All right. For it is for the life thereof, the blood is. Therefore I said unto the children of Israel, ye shall eat the blood of no manner of flesh, for the life of all flesh, the soul, the nephesh, nephesh of all flesh is the blood thereof. Whosoever eateth it shall be cut off, and every soul, there it is again, nephesh, that eateth that which died of itself, or that which was torn with beasts, whether it be one of your own country or a stranger, he shall both wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the even, then shall he be clean, and if he wash him not, nor bathe his flesh, then he shall bear his iniquity. So, at any rate, where is the nephesh? In the blood. Now the next question is, what makes that nephesh a chi? <laughs> the Hebrew word chi, C-H-A-I, means living. A living soul. The soul life is where? In the blood. But what makes it the difference between a living soul and a dead soul? You have a nephesh chi, C-H-A-I, which is a living soul, and you have a nephesh muth, M-U-T-H, which is a dead soul. Now, what makes the distinction and the difference between these two? In uh, Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the what? Breath. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of Kai, the breath of life, the breath of living. That's the word Kai. And at that point, man became a Kai Nefesh, a living soul. The word living is Kai, 
and the word soul is nephesh. So you have a nephesh kai, a living soul, at what point? At the point of breath life. Before it has breath life, it may be a soul, if it has blood, but at the point that it takes its first breath, it becomes a what? A living soul, a nephesh kai. That distinction must be understood. A fetus. Is it a nephesh kai? No. It's only a nephesh. How about a person that has died? Is it a nephesh kai? No, it's only a nephesh. Now you want to talk about abortion? You want to talk about euthanasia? When to pull the plug? Biblically speaking, a person is a living soul, a nephesh kai, as long as he is doing what? Breathing. And when he has stopped breathing, or when he is not breathing, he is only a soul, he is not a living soul. That's the usage of these words. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of chai, and man became a nephesh kai, a living soul. In uh, Genesis chapter 7. Now this is the time of the flood. Verse 21. And all flesh did what? Died. This word died is not mute. It's a different word for die. Normally when you see the word died, it's mute. M-U-T-H. But this is the word that means to breathe out. To expire. When you take your last breath, all fl flesh, the flood now, got the picture? Breathed its last. It expired. It breathed out. That moved upon the earth. Both of fowl, of cattle. Do cattle, fowl, have soul life? Sure, they have breath life, right? And of beasts, and of every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth, and every man. All in whose what? Nostrils. What do you do with your nostrils? Breathe. Was the breath. There it is. The breath of life. And the words of life, literally from the Hebrew, are the spirit of life. So it's the breath of the spirit of life. Remember I told you spirit could be used of the soul of man, and is from time to time. Here it's the spirit of life, and the word life is chai again, C-H-A-I, chai. So it's the spirit of life, or the spirit of living. Everything whose nostrils had breath in it, the breath of the, where spirit is put for the soul, of the soul life of man, of man or animals. And all that was in the dry land did what? Died. That's the word mute, died. So, when it died, when it becomes mute, is it any longer a nephesh kai? No, it's simply a nephesh. You have blood after you die? For a little while. But you are technically what? A mute nephesh. <laughs> Right, because you no longer have 
Breath wide. Remember? Okay. Look, look at um, Job. Well, no, look at Numbers. Numbers 19, verse 11. He that toucheth the dead body. See the word body? It's nephesh. This is nephesh muth, the dead soul. Of any man shall be unclean seven days. And in verse 13, whosoever toucheth the dead soul, there it is again, nephesh muth, of any man that is dead and purifies not himself defiles the tabernacle of God. <coughs> now, I just want you to see that phrase, dead soul, nephesh muth. When it's a nephesh muth, then it's no longer a nephesh kai. That means there's no longer any breath life in that animal or man. Now go to the book of Job. 33. Job 33, verse 4. The Spirit of God hath made me, and here it is, the breath of the Almighty hath given me chi, C-H-I-A-I, living life. <laughs> he was a nephesh. But what gave him chi? <laughs> what made his nephesh a living soul? Breath. Breath life. The breath of the Almighty. Look at Job 12. Verse 10. In whose hand, God's hand, is the soul, there's the word nephesh, of every living thing. Living thing is chi. The soul of all life, of every living thing. And the, what? Breath of all mankind. The word breath there is spirit. Spirit used for the breath or soul life of a man, as I mentioned before. Uh, look at chapter 10, verse 40. So Joshua smote all the country of the hills and of the south and of the vale, the valley, and of the springs and all their kings, and he left none remaining, but utterly destroyed all that, what? Breathed as the Lord God of Israel commanded. And when that breath life went out of them, you know, you, you, to kill something, you kill that which has breath life in it. And when you do, then it's no longer a nephesh, kai. It's a nephesh, but not a nephesh kai. Then it becomes a nephesh moot. In chapter 11, and in verse 11, and they smote all the souls, all the nephesh, that were therein with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying them. There was not any left to what? Breathe. And when the breath life went out of those nephishes, then what do you have left? You have nephesh muth, no nephesh kind. Uh, look at verse 14. 
and all the spoil of these cities and the cattle and the children of Israel took for a prey unto themselves. But every man they smote with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them, neither left they any to what? Breathe. There it is again. It's the breath life that makes it a living soul as opposed to just a soul or a dead soul. Back to Genesis. Chapter 1. In verse 20, And God said, Let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that hath life. The word life is two words in Hebrew. Nefesh kai. It's not just a soul. It's a living soul. Nefesh kai. A living soul. So all these creatures, these animals that move, they had breath life, but they were living souls. They were living souls. Man also has a living soul. But man can also have what? Spirit. Spirit and soul are not the same. They're not identical. Misunderstanding that has been a great cause of lack in understanding the new birth and the whole Holy Spirit field. Every that hath nephesh kai soul life, or living soul life, living soul, and fowl that may fly above the earth in the firmament of heaven, and God created. He created. Why did he have to create these animals? Because they did not, there was no soul life before this. There was only biological life. Now God had to create the soul. And he created great whales, and every living creature, living is Kai, creature is Nephesh. Every living soul that moveth, which the waters bring forth abundantly after their kind, every winged fowl after its kind, and God saw that it was good. So all the animals have Nephesh Kai in them. When they die, they take their last breath, then they are Nephesh Muth. They are dead souls. When they are an embryo or fetus, before they take that first breath life, they are nephesh, but they are not nephesh kai. They are not a living soul. That's the difference. Look at verse 24. And God said, let the earth bring forth the living creature, the nephesh kai, after its kind, cattle and creeping thing and beast of the earth, after its kind it was so. And in verse 30. And to every beast of the earth and every fowl of the air to everything that creepeth upon the earth, wherein there is life. And that again is nephesh kai. It's not just nephesh, it's nephesh kai. I have given every green herb for me. And it was so. And in chapter 2, verse 7, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of kai, and man became a nephesh kai, a living soul. See how beautiful the word is? It all fits. No contradiction, no problem with it. To understand life, you've got to understand the word. Reverend Dubofsky made the statement this weekend that no, there's no contradiction between the healing arts professions and the word. And that's when both are worked without any theory and, you know, extraneous ideas. It has to be worked on the integrity of each 
individual field, scientifically, objectively. You approach the Word not with your preconceived ideas, but with letting the Word speak for itself and fit together. You approach science, the healing arts, from the same standpoint, not with your preconceived ideas, but that scientifically all that information will fit together, and there is no contradiction. The breath of life. So, when it comes to the field of ethics, the subjects of abortion and euthanasia, and all these other areas that are eating away at people's times and lives, the word is very simple. Not every situation is very simple, perhaps. And it takes tremendous counseling, tremendous growth. And, of course, we live in a mixed society, which means the government interferes with the right of the human individual to make his free will decisions at times. It interferes with the believing of an individual and it interferes with the family unit, which is the basic unit of society, not the government or the state, but the family. And when you live in a, pro a society like that, you have problems to which there are no solutions, but we still work and we fight from the integrity of the word to get our society to the place that perhaps our children and our grandchildren can enjoy life to a much greater degree than we've been able to. But breath life. When does a nephish cease to be living? When it takes its last breath. When does it start living? When it takes its first breath. See? This verse is mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15. Where it says, 1 Corinthians 15, let's see, verse 45. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul, a nephesh kai. The last Adam was made a living, quickening his living spirit. Because he was raised from the dead, now he has a new body, immortal, living by that spirit that's within him. Not because of a nephesh kai, which is terminal today. It will come, your, your and my soul life will come to an end. It will become youth. But when you got a new body in the resurrection or in the gathering together for the church, a new body, it's immortal, incorruptible. Then it's a living spirit, not just a living soul. And one more in 1 Samuel 25 that I thought was real neat. 1 Samuel 25. You can work these all the way through the word. But don't ask yourself, is this the word Hebrew word nephesh? Ask yourself, is it nephesh? Is it nephesh kai? Or is it nephesh mute? Or what is it? And you cannot mix these terms around. Verse 29 of 1 Samuel 25. Yet a man is risen to pursue thee. This is Abigail talking to David, her husband, and to seek thy soul, but the soul of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of life with the Lord thy God. God's going to hide your soul and wrap up your nephesh in the bundle or the bag 
this word can be translated. Bag of life. The word life is kai. Until, you know, if you walk according to the world, you have a nephesh kai now. But your life is in danger of becoming nephesh mute real quick and soon like. <laughs> but if you walk with God, He will hide your nephesh, your soul, in the bag or bundle of life of, of the kai, the living. Isn't that beautiful? I think it's a neat verse. That'd be a great one to close with tonight. So, while you're working this field of the battle of the senses and revelation faith, keep those terms in mind and keep working in wor the word in light of how those w biblical terms are used, the Hebrew terms. So, Father, we sure love you and thank you for this night and for the greatness of your word that lives in our living souls, in our hearts, and because of the spirit of God we have within us. Thank you for the great fellowship together through Christ Jesus. Amen.